We hear these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. The reason Paul can write these words with confidence that although we are hard-pressed, we are not crushed is because Jesus was crushed in our place. Although we are perplexed, but not in despair, because Jesus despaired for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Although we may be persecuted, we are not abandoned, because Jesus was left there, abandoned by most of his disciples as they wandered away from him, Peter even denying him, struck down, but not destroyed, for he was destroyed on our behalf so that we might have life everlasting and eternal. I want to welcome you to our Good Friday service where we commemorate and remember the death of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to write, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Paul commands us to carry around with us the death because it is is in understanding his death that his life can truly be revealed in us because as he was crushed, as he was persecuted, as he was abandoned, as he was destroyed, we gained new in everlasting life. And so as we walk through this service together, our framework will be scripture, meditation, and our response. We have three readings of scripture, three separate meditations, and three opportunities to respond to what Jesus did for us on the cross. This week, as I previewed some videos for our Easter service on Sunday, I couldn't help but get emotional just watching samples of these videos that had footage of Jesus uh, being persecuted and dying on that cross, watching the thorns that we have represented here go into his head and thinking about all the kingship motif we've been talking about in the Gospel of Matthew and thinking that's how God demonstrates his kingship, through humility through persecution, through abandonment, through death, and through him even being destroyed again in our place that we might have new life. So this evening, I invite us all to read the story afresh, to meditate it, to meditate upon it together, and then to respond with new vigor and renewed commitment to follow him who gave everything for us. Let's go to him in prayer now. Lord Jesus, we come before you and ask that you would open our eyes of faith to see how death can truly turn into life, to see how you substituted yourself for us in our place, to see how God indeed became our king, is offering a kingdom to us if we will only believe. Lord, open our eyes this evening. 
we give this time to you and ask that you would work miracles in the next hour together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture for our first meditation is Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Would you please be seated? What has happened since Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday was only Days earlier, Jesus had ridden in on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. He had moved into the temple and cleansed it, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4. He had presented himself as the long-awaited, humble king. And at least some of the crowd had recognized him as the long-awaited king. And they praised him and called out, Son of David. So what has happened? How have we gotten from Palm Sunday only days earlier to this scene? And what do we have at this scene? In my head, I picture four players. They talk about the crowd who I have over here. And the chief priests stand between the crowd and Jesus and Pilate. Pilate's elevated. He's on the judgment seat. It's the crowd that has most noticeably changed. 
It's the crowd that was only days earlier, at least some, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. What has happened to them? Verse 20 tells us, the chief priests have persuaded them. They've won won them over. They've convinced them to execute Jesus. Not sure why they were so persuasive. Maybe it was their role. Maybe the crowd at this point thought, wow, I I guess this ship has sailed. Here's Jesus. He's about ready to be condemned. Apparently he isn't the son of David. We don't know exactly what they were thinking. But what we do get from the story is these chief priests and the elders have turned the crowd against Jesus. And they've been able to turn the crowd against Jesus even though their motives are obviously bad. Even Pilate, it says in verse 18, knows that they have handed Jesus over out of envy. If Pilate could see it, Jesus announced this when he was in the temple and later announcing why they were envious as they tried to hang on to what wasn't theirs. But for whatever reason, they're able and they persuade the crowd. But why doesn't Pilate step in? Pilate has already identified the bad motives of the chief priest. And he is in the judgment seat. In this scene, he has been given authority to act, to intervene. Why doesn't he? Well, we're told in verse 23 and 24 that he begins to. He sees what's going on and he asks, why? Why crucify him? But then he gets intimidated by the crowd. And Pilate doesn't step in because the crowd intimidates him to make a bad decision. He says he sees he's getting nowhere and instead he's getting an uproar. And this is the last thing he wants. So Pilate is intimidated to make a horrible decision. To completely mishandle Justice. So how does he deal with this? And this is where I think it gets very interesting. Pilate deals with it by announcing that he is innocent. He says, I wash my hands of this. I am innocent. I have a question for you. Where does he get that authority? He actually, in this scene, makes two judgments. One he's given authority to make and one he's not. He announces himself as innocent. He doesn't have authority to do this. And what's interesting is he is clearly guilty and announces himself as innocent. He does not carry out justice because of fear. This isn't innocent. And then there's another judgment that he's actually been given authority to carry out. He has the opportunity to rescue an innocent man. A righteous man. His wife has warned him he's innocent. But he doesn't. 
two judgments. He makes one in regards to himself where he's guilty and calls himself innocent and he doesn't even have the authority to do this. He's not his own judge. His creator is. And in the other instance, he sees an innocent man and condemns him to death. And the tragedy is he had the authority to intervene here. And he doesn't. Why? Why does this scene have to play out like this? Why does this tragedy have to go down like this? I think our clue, our answer, comes in Matthew 20, verse 28 where Jesus says the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Pilate really wanted to be cleansed of his guilt, he only needed to turn to the man who he was condemning to death. And it's the same for us. We too can be cleansed of our guilt by turning to the innocent one who gave his life as a ransom for many. In response to this meditation, we're going to now continue worship by singing Jesus paid it all. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt down in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. The sta- they spit upon him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This passage is dark and this passage is ugly. As we read the passage together, I feel no different than when I prepared for tonight. Matthew presents a very dark and morbid picture and scene. The behavior of the guards is repulsive. 
If anyone's children were acting this way, surely the father would step in and have something to say about it. If I saw a stranger being treated like this, though I didn't know him or her, I would step in, surely. We just read that they stripped him, that they crowned him with thorns, that they knelt before him and mocked him, they spit on him, they beat him over the head many times and then led him away to be crucified. This is God's son. This is the king of God's kingdom. We read the coronation of the incarnation. This is our king, crowned. As a father, I don't know how God let this continue. It churns and tangles and turns my stomach as I read the words. The strokes of the picture that Matthew paints for us here doesn't look like a king at all. It's not regal, it's not majestic, it's not powerful, it's not heralded. Yet still something in my inner soul resonates with what we see here. It identifies with this kind of king. Something in my spirit's moved when I read the words of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. A king of total depravity, total humility, of complete grace and mercy. And for some reason, as we read these words and meditate on them, something at the core of who I am is stirred and moved by Jesus' lack of contention and by his absolute submission to what's being done to him. This is because in God's kingdom, the only path to victory is in fact through defeat. The king himself has told us this very thing earlier in the gospel. If we wanna gain our life, we have to lose it. If we wanna be first, we have to put ourselves last. This is the truth that is, exists in God's kingdom. So as we watch Matthew tell the story that's been told for ages, we look on the scene and it appears to be a portrait of defeat. Yet tonight we gather to remember and to honor and to glorify Jesus' sufferings in what we just read. Because we know that this is not defeat for our king. The words of Paul add a commentary from 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, this is the power of God. 
So as we prepare to take communion together, to identify ourselves with the sufferings and the punishment of our king, as we hold the bread and the cup, as we look at these things, having read the truth that exists in Matthew's gospel, we see and we know and we get to trust that victory is coming on Sunday. Please stand as we read uh, chapter 27, starting in verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it up to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Surely he was the Son of God. It's amazing that just a few hours after taunting and tormenting Jesus, the same guards that were watching him said, Surely he was the Son of God. It's a miracle. They mocked him, they beat him, they stripped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and after this, they say, surely he was the son of God. How did this happen? How did this centurion and the guards go from mocking Jesus to having a moment of belief that he, he was and he is who he said he was? How did this miracle take place? Was it the gruesomeness of the scene that caused them to lament? Was it the gruesomeness of the scene that caused them to change their mind? The, the beating, the bloody flesh, the pierced hands and feet, the crown of thorns, the yelling, the spitting, the hitting. No, we see that this did not change them. They were used to it. 
In fact, as Jesus suffered, they said, don't help him, leave him alone. They mocked him again. Let's see if Elijah will help him. What was it that changed these centurions? What was it that changed these guards? The gospel writers want to make something very clear to us as we read this scene. They want us to know that Christ was willing to be on that cross. They want us to know that at any minute, Christ could have called down a legion of angels to his aid. At any minute, he could have been off that cross, but he stayed there. He hung there. He died there. Matthew writes in verse 50, he gave up his spirit. In Luke, Luke writes that Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. In John, the gospel John, John writes that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus willingly stayed on that cross. He willingly bore the penalty of sin Our sin, he died for us. And the guards could see that willingness. And in that moment when he died, creation responded. The earth quaked, the sky went dark. Things that were dead came to life. Creation responded to Christ's work on the cross. The guards that mocked him and tormented him, said, surely he was the son of God. The guards responded to Christ's work on the cross. Because Christ's work on the cross demands a response. Creation shook The guards believed. And 2,000 years later, removed from that gruesome scene, we too can respond. We can respond by believing in the one who died for us. We can respond by giving our life back to the one who gave his life for us. Christ's work on the cross demands a response. We are going to sing a hymn together, a hymn that may be well known to some of you and to others it may be new. And I just lost the page that I marked. <laughs> What's there? Hymn 178. Words that say, Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Words that are written that say, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Christ's work on the cross demands a response.